Hi, welcome to Make Sense, a show about creatives and how they make sense of the world. My name is Raylan Yant, and in the last episode I posted, I had the chance to talk to the musician Ben Zadie and the visual artist Ariana Chaiwaranan about their perspectives on what happens when art meets AI. We had a fascinating discussion, and today's episode is a continuation of that discussion with somebody who studies literature. Colton Valentine is an Erdogan scholar at Oxford studying English. He graduated at the top of his class at Harvard and afterwards went to study French literature in Paris. His primary research is on 19th century European cosmopolitanisms with secondary interests in comparative modernisms and the hermeneutic and philological traditions. Hermeneutics is basically the branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation and philology is the branch of knowledge that deals with how languages develop and relate to each other over time. Colton has written for The Harvard Advocate and Crimson, The Huffington Post, and The LA Review of Books. And full disclosure, I've known Colton for a long time. I've always appreciated how thoughtful he is and how good he is at applying abstract theories to everyday situations. So it was a lot of fun for me to talk to Colton about this question of what happens when art meets AI. Ariana Chaiwaranan was there too, and she joins the conversation at the end. I began our conversation on the topic of robot-generated poetry. I was introduced to this idea by a TED talk called Can a Computer Write Poetry? by Oscar Schwartz. I have a question. Can a computer write poetry? This is a provocative question. You think about it for a minute, and you suddenly have a bunch of other questions, like, what is a computer? What is poetry? What is creativity? In the talk, Oscar presents the audience with three pairs of poems, and each time he asks the audience to try to guess which one is written by a human and which one was generated by an artificially intelligent program. In the first test, it's very easy for the audience to guess correctly. In the second one, it's a little bit more difficult. And in the last one, most of the audience gets it wrong, mistaking a poem written by Gertrude Stein for one written by an AI program. One of the key takeaways of this talk is that these tests reflect back to us how unstable the definition of human is and raises questions about what it means to be human. This is what I asked Colton about first, and this is how he responded. There are two categories that are actually unstable here. Um, and one you can point to is the category of being a human. And you can look at it sort of from the like AI perspective, but you can also look at it as the category of poetry being unstable. What I would say is that the idea that poetry is supposed to be emotional and express a sort of human sentimentality is actually a very recent phenomenon. It mm. sort of comes out of rom romanticism in particular in the 19th century. It's a very specific, very European, in fact, uh, tradition of what poetry is supposed to be. For hundreds of years, poetry was extremely confined by um, rhythm and meter, and it would be recognized not by a quality of expressing a human emotion or feeling human mm -hmm. in this sense, but it would just be determined by how rigorously it conformed to a structure. Mm -hmm. Then there was a, you know, a time of epic poetry where 
the poem would be defined, you know, not based off of the the meter, but based off of if it was carrying along sort of epic history and epic knowledge. So then it was being defined by the mythologies and the content that were supposed to conform to the, the set of works. Um, and, you know, there are many different movements and this manifests differently in every single culture mm-hmm. at every single historical moment. But I suppose what I'm saying is that the, the sort of test that's being done here seems to be defined in this TED Talk based off of a certain idea of what poetry is mm-hmm. in addition to what humanity is and right. a certain idea of what emotionality is. Yeah. And the Gertrude Stein example is, is perfect as well mm-hmm. because this is a new phase in writing in, you know, in modernism where we start to rethink about how, not about necessarily what the human is, but also re- to rethink about what art is. Yeah. And what is interesting is that each historical moment we bring a set of pre-existing ideas about what our artworks are supposed to be and what we look for in an artwork. Mm-hmm. And we happen to be at a moment now with poetry where we're, we've kind of returned to this 19th century, again, I would say, like, cult of sen- not cult of sentimentality, but a focus on sentimentality and emotion. You know, you see this in spoken word poetry, mm-hmm. in um, sort of, like, intimate poetry, which is very popular now, and it's supposed to be, again, an expressive art form. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's sort of a, a second question here that is very much about our our cultural sensibilities at a given moment, mm-hmm. determining what we would expect to be artistic in the work, and that has maybe less to do with an inherent human characteristic and more to do with a certain sociological formation of what we look for in art mm-hmm. at a certain time. And it is different in every country and every group of people. You, you can flip the analysis and say that there is still a human creator mm-hmm. in each of these artworks, and it's the person who designed mm-hmm. the machine and who designed the AI machine. And it seems like sort of a facile argument, except that this was a is a very common um, practice in modern artwork is for modernists to be interested in aleatory artwork mm-hmm. in machine designed artwork. The you know the surrealists practiced a number of different systems like this. These sort of externally created systems are not necessarily new. New in this case, mm-hmm. there are historical precedents mm-hmm. for them, mm-hmm. and that this is a type of movement that might you know be mapped onto yes. the AI movement as well. What about the new technologies where an artificial intelligence system learns something or develops to a point at which the it operates beyond the knowledge of the creator? Um, there, there are now systems that will like learn how to play a game and like win the game and the process is a black box to the people who design the technology and they actually don't know how it reached those conclusions. And so if there are AI systems that are doing things beyond human control or the beyond the trajectory set by the initial conditions that mm-hmm. the human determined, then then is it is it really does it really have originality and is it really creating its own poetry? Which makes me want to ask, is it possible to have a form of poetry that humans did not create and like maybe that humans don't understand. It seems like in order to have any type of like cat- any type of aesthetic category to me would depend on either a human intentionality to create it or a human intentionality to receive it. Mm-hmm. 
but you might not need to have the first case of human intentionality to create. Mm -hmm. You might, in order to label, to have something be defined as any set of objects, mm -hmm. I think that you need a human um, receptivity to label it as a certain object because humans are the one that divide up the world into a set of linguistic tools and mm -hmm. a set of different differentiations between objects. Mm -hmm. and we invented the category of art and mm -hmm. invented the category of poetry and it has a certain a certain significance bestowed on it by humans. But that significance has changed constantly throughout time mm -hmm. and has been applied by artists to pre-existing phenomena, mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. you know fish swimming around mm -hmm. um, that are then transformed into musical notes, to, I mean, you know, the, the Kantian definition of the sublime was about just human perception of external natural phenomena mm -hmm. those were not being human created but that was an artwork mm -hmm. and so there are certainly ways in which artworks and i think as a subset poetry can exist that isn't at all created by humans mm -hmm. but it seems like you would need to have at least human perception mm -hmm. of it to of being an artwork to claim that it was an artwork mm -hmm. but that's as simple as us sitting here and labeling it as an artwork mm -hmm. but you know if you define an art object as based off of creation and reception mm -hmm. all the time, which is the way that I think of any sort of artwork, that it is actually a, a co-creation process between creator and receiver, mm -hmm. then it has to have a human role, even if it's just at the receiving end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The question then becomes less, can a computer write poetry and more, will humans accept poetry that a computer writes? Yes, exactly. Because then you have the other pole of the, the kind of binary that I'm imagining of creation reception. And mm -hmm. if you have one of them, that is human and that's constituting the object of art, then you're set. So then it, it does really become a question of perception. Yes. You've done research on intertextuality and looked at how different writers reference each other's work to create a network of meaning that kind of undergirds a culture and like the way the role that that plays in the artwork itself. So I'm curious about whether you think a computer could participate in that network, um, what the implications of that would be, and also how essential is that participation in the network to the creation of art? That's a really good question. Um, well, maybe I'll just quickly define what intertextuality is. Yes, um, please. Really <laughs> I mean, it's a very fancy word to just describe the relations between texts. So intratextuality would refer to a phenomenon within a text inter between them. So something as simple as Virginia Woolf citing Shakespeare. Um, but what's interesting about intertextuality is that it happens in many, many different planes. So it can happen in many different forms. It can happen with a direct citation of a previous work. It can happen with a character that has certain qualities of a character from another work of literature. It doesn't necessarily have to even be accepted by the artist that created the work. Mm -hmm. And so this is something that I think pertains quite well to AI, is that there are lots of intertextuality studies that are done on a work's subconscious intertextual relations, the way that it participates in a cultural memory that maybe the author is not even aware of. Mm -hmm. And there's all, you know, the person, the theorist who coined 
intertextuality was Julia Kristeva, and she sort of at the end of the sort of most theoretical end of her work is not applying it to sort of simple citations of Shakespeare by Virginia Woolf, but she's speaking about the fact that every single moment in a text is actually an intertext because every word is defined by cultural memory and by everything that the author has read previously. And so if you sort of take the, the more like radical extreme idea of intertextuality, then you wouldn't need a computer to have to have read specific works of literature. Mm-hmm. It's possible for, just like it's possible for an art, um, something created by a computer to be perceived as human mm-hmm. and to be playing human roles mm-hmm. in artwork, it's possible for something to participate in cultural memory, mm-hmm. you know, um, without the artwork being aware of it. For instance, if let's say that someone who has never read Shakespeare happens to write a line of to be or not to be in their novel. Mm -hmm. Even if they're not aware of that, it will be perceived Mm -hmm. by the audience, by the readership, as having a cultural memory intertextual role. Mm -hmm. And just in the same way that a computer doesn't have to be aware of the fact that it's citing Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. if it wrote those lines and it were again perceived in human reception as creating cultural memory, then it would. Is there anything lost when a reference is made by a computer that is perceived as a reference and sort of taken in as a reference, but that wasn't something that um, was like tied to the creator's psychology or the, or the creator's creativity, and it was random? It's a very good question because it has a, a great deal of ideological stakes mm-hmm. in, in literary criticism and in literary history. Uh, and again, I would kind of make a similar argument to what I said earlier about the definition of art, where mm-hmm. the idea of the authentic artist is, again, I really would say a, a 19th century construction, mm-hmm. um, in a 19th century, very European mm-hmm. idea of what art is supposed to be. The, mm-hmm. the idea that there's an an internal self that is naturally expressed mm-hmm. and that is completely authentic mm-hmm. is very different from a vocational idea of art where you were just supposed to become a mas- masterfully, you know, a master of whatever your craft was mm-hmm. and then reiterate it to the best that you could. And it wasn't that you had an internal interior life that mm-hmm. was going to be expressed. You were just reiterating the sort of reproduced systems. It was somewhat like a computer or a machine, actually, just to be a, a virtuoso. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of is something lost in a an intended versus non-intended intertextual reference. It and it's one of the great debates of any type of literary criticism is do you need authorial intent in order to have a meaning be created mm-hmm. in a work of art? And essentially the way in which criticism has gone since the middle of the 20th century is absolutely not. There I mean this is the sort of turning point where Roland Barthes wrote a famous essay called The Death of the Author. Mm. And the claim is that in the 20th century, the author figure has been dethroned and has been knocked off the pedestal where you're no longer looking, what did the author intend with the work of art? You know, what? how am I supposed to be receiving it based off of what he did? And Barthes calls it the birth of the reader, where the mm. reader takes control and the reader is in charge of determining the meaning of the text and you no longer have to be beholden to the intent of the work and you know the the argument is that if 
the work is meaning in all of these significant ways that the author didn't intend. Maybe it was part of the author's subconscious, mm -hmm. collective consciousness mm -hmm. through his intertextual references he couldn't even vocalize, mm -hmm. and those things appear in the text without his intention, which we all experience when we write. We write things that we didn't even know that we were vocalizing, and we look back on them and we're shocked that mm -hmm. they're there. And then even if it's not, you don't attribute it to a, psycho, a sort of psychological subconscious plane, if, again, all of the readers are appropriating the text in this way, does it really matter? Mm -hmm. And that is much more powerful, actually, than mm -hmm. what one person thought about what they intended with the work of art. Mm -hmm. So I think if you look at the sort of the current state of this, um, this criticism, it would support the idea, again, that the, it would support the idea that AI-created poetry has an equal claim, mm -hmm. even without intentionality. Mm -hmm. the, the big fear in literary criticism with this sort of thing is about reappropriation of artworks, mm -hmm. which is, you know, is a very is a significant issue, especially in terms of um, ideological reappropriation, the way that someone could intend something very specific with a work of art, and it could be taken up by a fascist force. Mm -hmm. And if you, know, if you decide that meaning is entirely determined by reception and mm -hmm. by what people think about works, then it seems like there could be some very frightening political implications. Right. That doesn't seem quite applicable to the computer issue, but it's mm -hmm. something to think about. Interesting, because right now I think the way people talk about AI and art often hinges on that. People talk about how, oh, AI is unable to create art because it doesn't have a self, it doesn't have a consciousness to express. And the assumption underlying all of that is that the purpose of art is to express the self. And that is not necessarily the case, but that's part of why in the current discourse there's this kind of um, conflict between AI and art. But if you zoom out, if you look at the broader possibilities that you're talking about and the, um, these other formulations of how art can be created, then it looks kind of promising for artificial intelligence because it's just a, it can generate meaning that can then be received. And as long as the humans accept it, either purposefully or unintentionally, it can qualify as art. Um, it can qualify as poetry. Absolutely, I think that's that's very accurate. And one of the other exciting things about it is that it will help. It might help decenter our current idea of what art should be. Mm -hmm. You know, even the the fact that we're having this conversation is evidence that AI is posing on a sort of mass scale a question that makes us reevaluate how we got to a certain definition of art mm -hmm. from this trajectory and can let us revisit how how arbitrary that is or how socially contingent it is mm -hmm. and it lets us reevaluate these old models and old systems and kind of see the resonances mm -hmm. with what AI is putting out now and not only could it sort of give a, a place to AI if we do this genealogy of how we got to our definition of art mm -hmm. but it's also very exciting that AI is allowing us to do that and inducing yeah. us to do that and that's always wonderful when you have a, a new phenomenon that is forcing you to reevaluate how you got to a certain relationship with your objects and to, mm -hmm. to do historical work mm -hmm. on that. One limitation that Ariana, Ariana and I discussed with an artificially intelligent artist is that its ability to respond to its audience is quite limited. Like visual art seems more 
doable for the artificially intelligent robot because it's more the artist is more distant. The artist creates an object that the audience interacts with, and then the feedback isn't as real time. But something like stand-up comedy, which is all about like real time feedback, and um, is very difficult for for a robot. Well, in terms of something like stand-up comedy, that just seems to be an issue of insufficient technology. Mm. Because you could easily imagine a case in which we got better at designing AI, and it could take in sensory stimulus mm. that would let it reevaluate itself, and mm. it, could, it could notice if someone weren't laughing at something, mm. or, or hear a, a sort of awkward pause, and then it would have programmed into it that, oh, after an awkward pause, you make a self-deprecating comment, mm-hmm. which is what humans often do in that mode, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it seems like that division might just break down mm-hmm. if, the, if the AI um, improved. On the other hand, you could kind of do the exact opposite analysis and say that if AI lacks this ability to receive feedback now, it's also an issue to something like visual art that might seem like it doesn't require feedback but if you if you analyze it in terms of the feedback that has already gone into the artist's creation of that artwork at that point based off of the cultural context in which they were mm-hmm. raised in based off of their ideas about what art is supposed to be the art market with you know what they think their parents will think about the artwork what they think their friends will think about the artwork where they know it's going to be positioned etc um, you could kind of argue that even art forms that we think of as not being as sort of immediately human responsive are equally caught up in that mm-hmm. same process. And in fact, that actually might be harder to program mm-hmm. than something that is sort of direct when you're taking up in live person feedback. It might be harder to think about programming some sort of like cultural re- receptacle um, feed, you know, feedback of all of, all of your material that way and that you know that also takes place even if you're rejecting a certain cultural construction that you're confronted with it still is a, a response to it you know so it's not just that these artists are following what they believe people want even if they might reject it it's a certain way of following it mm-hmm. so you could kind of approach this from both directions yeah the the fact that the ai isn't an impressionable being within a larger society limits its ability to to respond to the constant feedback of living. Yes, I think exactly. Again, you could probably, I mean, you could start to code these materials and you could get um, get closer and closer to it. You could give it all of the knowledge of, of a current, you know, sociological or cultural distribution. I suppose, I mean, it would, that would be, I guess, the, the asymptote you were hoping to get to would be to give it a human level of capacity of having lived a life and creating from the position of that life. But I, I don't know if that is sort of is feasible. I mean, yeah. what you would need is, I think of um, one of my favorite lines from Midnight's Children is, to understand just a single life, you would have to swallow the world. Mm. And the idea is that in order to try and explain any person's story, you would have to explain every single story of everyone else in the world at that time and everyone else who had ever lived. Because all of those things are having some sort of effect on that person's story and can be interlinked if you really push on it. Mm -hmm. And so it seems that in order for a piece of artificial intelligence to be able to, you know, 
create something that accurately, it would have to accurately represent the entire world at mm -hmm. the same time, and it would have to swallow the content of the entire world mm -hmm. to perfectly recreate that. I'm not sure if that is technical, technologically feasible, but yeah. that's sort of the extreme end of this receptivity phenomenon that we're yeah. discussing. So an AI could be an artist if it could swallow the world. Yeah, that's kind of what like we were talking about earlier in terms of technologically, it makes sense to make an AI that takes in data from all over the place, right? Like, and that the thing that makes the connection between human creators special is that like you know the artist lived a totally different life from you and is able to generate content that speaks to a moment in your life. Mm -hmm. And that kind of coincidental encounter and connection is what makes it special. But that with the kind of AI that we are looking to make, it does have a universal kind of input. And that maybe the work generated out of that, the connective element isn't special anymore because mm -hmm. there is a kind of universal digestion. Already taking place. Right. Mm -hmm. But maybe but maybe what you're saying is like you need that actually mm -hmm. to then pare down to that individual life um, that it's not just about programming one life but programming everything and then being kind of selective in the integration of that material mm -hmm. into a life mm -hmm. or a simulation of a life in the creator yeah mm -hmm. I'm curious about you were talking about how the idea of the artist as a kind of um vehicle for emotional expression of some kind of essential human quality is like a recent phenomena and I was wondering if that is because his, we've been on some kind of historical trajectory toward you know a competition maybe against our technological innovation and a kind of like externalizing of certain tasks that humans do like right like you, you start to like the Renaissance has the crisis of the artist as an intellectual versus a craftsman. Mm -hmm. And since then, you might say that the high artist has been an intellectual. And I'm wondering if now the artist has to have this kind of spiritual component from now on. And like since the kind of romantics because of technological advancement and the externalization of certain human tasks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting claim that, you know, if you if you think about this this cult of the individual starting to develop in earlier modernity with the Renaissance and then really coming to the fore in in Romanticism, is is part of that, a significant part of that, a symptom of an anxiety of the industrial revolution and of the increasing autonomization of human life the sense that we were losing our you know sort of natural human connection to our objects and our lives and so there was an increasing sense that we needed to define more and more the individual and the individual human spirit in order to compensate for that and carve out domains that were um, were unique and I, I think that's very very applicable for today. Um, for instance, when you think about how, how much anxiety there is about the idea that robots might be able to create art. You know, it's sort of perplexing that we're so scared of this phenomenon because art is just, I mean, it, 
it seems like we should just say, oh, you know, if it's being perceived as art and it's creating meaning in the world and it seems beautiful or pleasurable in some sense, and there's just more of it being created by more areas and being perceived in that way, it doesn't seem like there could be a negative mm -hmm. consequence. And so it, that might indicate that the, this, this fixation on the idea that something has to be human about art or human about anything is more of a, a symptom of a, a fear that has been developing for the last couple hundred years, as you're saying. So I think that, that you could definitely make a good argument for mapping the kind of cult of the artistic individual onto a, a rise, an increasing rise in machine learning and industrialism. What we're trying to hang on to is not necessarily an essential quality of what art is, but rather an essential quality of what human is. Mm -hmm. And like that's, that's what we want to maintain. Um, right, and so it's a good loop back to the beginning of our conversation where you were asking if there's an essential quality of being human, and I sent us down the, mm -hmm. is there an essential quality of art? And it seems like we've kind of, we're so scared about the essential quality of human that we're, we grasp at these other things <laughs> to try and give us a sense that if we can find another object that we can associate with being human, mm -hmm. and that defines its position and fixes its position, then we can relieve our anxiety mm -hmm. about technological developments or our own our own condition, right? Mm -hmm. If we can just find something that only humans can do and that can be our basis, mm -hmm. um, then that would reassure us in this respect. So, and I think that's what's this like transfer, this slippage is going on between these two categories in this really cool way. Yeah. Well, thank you both for facing that fear with me today. <laughs> <laughs>
to have it translate to other bodies of national literature. So could we now give it a set of realist novels in English literature, then have this machine learning device figure out what the constitutive features are, and then search in corpuses of non-English literature in Japanese, French, German, Chinese texts in order to actually extract what the realist novels are in each of those different literary traditions. The music in this episode was generously provided by Joe Thomas. Her EP Ultratonal was released on her own label, Soft Apple, and can be found on her website, joethomas.me. That's J-O-T-H-O-M-A-S dot M-E. Thank you so much for listening to Make Sense. I'm Raylan Yant, and I'll see you next time.